0: This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women.
1: If I had to point to one lesson that the national security institutions still haven't learned is to stop dismissing horrible possibilities as worst case scenarios.
0: We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Smart Women, Smart Power is partnering with Girls Security for Women's History Month to facilitate conversations between young national security scholars and established national security leaders. This conversation features Girls Security Scholar Carolina Permoy and Carmen Medina, former CIA Deputy Director of Intelligence. We discussed issues of justice versus mercy in the intelligence community and how decision makers should think about transparency and loyalty. Carmen and Carolina, thank you so much for joining me here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Carolina, let me start with you. Issues such as justice versus mercy and transparency versus loyalty are very big questions. Why did you choose this as your topic for the conversation with Carmen today?
2: Yeah, so basically in researching my girl security project, which was about decisions after 9-11, I found that these questions were really helpful for me in just my own research. I started my research specifically about the U.S.'s use of torture and I looked back on a lot of conversations I had had in my own school classes about the death penalty and we had mentioned such questions and conflicts such as justice versus mercy. So I found that they were really helpful for me and then by the end of my research I realized that they were important for everyone to understand when looking back at America's history and I think they're really important to consider when moving forward in how to make national security decisions. And what made you want to talk about it with Carmen? So Carmen seems like somebody who really values thinking outside of the box and just her experience in the intelligence field. I really value because, again, like I wasn't alive during 9-11, so I already have a disconnect to a certain extent with the research I've been doing. So I really value that, and I also just value the fact that she seems to be aware and tries not to be caught in a routine way of thinking about such things, which I think is super important.
0: Very important. So the conversation is now turned over to you.
2: So thank you so much, Carmen. Thank you for joining me. So the first question I wanted to ask you are, what do you think are the underlying tensions that shape national security decisions?
1: So there's a lot of tensions that underlie national security decisions. As I advanced in my career, I became aware that there was like a set national security ideology that really for national security agencies, like like the intelligence community, it was important, for example, that the world be full of enemies. So if the world isn't full of enemies, then you don't need national security organizations so much. So I felt that that was like an ideology or a tension or a bias that distorted national security decision-making. I think, you know, another obvious one is the conflict between a nation's interest and the international interest. And, you know, that America First slogan, for example, implied that America... First, no matter what, and seem to eliminate the possibility that over the long term, any country might benefit from having a more stable international order, for example, like domestic law. And when it has been caught either by intent or error or sloppiness violating domestic law, it gets punished. But an organization like the CIA or any intelligence organization or any country in the world that's trying to do things secretly, kind of by definition, at least has the potential to violate international law. So I think that's another fascinating tension.
2: Yeah, that is interesting. And did you notice after 9-11, was there a change in this kind of way of thinking, do you think, within the CIA? And was there a change after the war on terrorism started or after the cases of torture in Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo Bay came out, for example?
1: Yeah, there was a change. And I think you can philosophize, kind of go meta over lots of issues. But when something really horrible happens to you, you feel it and you react to it in a visceral, physical, emotional way. And that's just human nature or organizational nature or national nature. So everything went hard after 9-11. And obviously, there were many decisions made about having Black prison sites or about using uh, extraordinary interrogation techniques that would not have been made before 9-11. I remember in like 2004 or so, a movie came out, I think it was called Munich. And it was about the Israelis going after the people, the Palestinians who killed their athletes at the Munich Olympics, I think it was 1972. And my boss went to see the movie and that Monday came into work and he said, you all should go see that movie because supposedly it's about Israel, but it's really about us. In other words, the movie depicts what happens when you become so focused on punishment, bringing people to justice, getting rid of the threat, that almost any option becomes justifiable. And, you know, after Abu Ghraib and not so much Guantanamo Bay, because, you know, Guantanamo prison is still with us, but I think after the examples of torture and, and abuse uh, became public in Abu Ghraib, people realized and it became more clear to them that there was a long-term cost of behaving, of being like the toughest guy on the street. And not only did, did Abu Ghraib happen, but you had the whole insurgency in Iraq that was so difficult for us to get under control. So I think that it's not so much that the desire to bring people to justice or to exact revenge changed, but there was more awareness that there was a long-term consequence to that that had to be managed.
2: Yeah, and off of that long-term consequence that you mentioned and the initial kind of want to have immediate revenge, Do you think there's a way to protect a nation while thinking about the long term consequences that people can easily realize, or is it still kind of in the air?
1: I don't think there's any way that you can prevent nations, individuals, families, communities from making bad decisions. I think that if you're religious, it goes back to original sin. It can go back to the debate between Hobbes and Locke as to whether or not humans are basically good or basically bad. My own formulation of that is that humans are basically good, but feckless. So we have good intentions, but we often don't execute them correctly. And in fact, execute them in the opposite direction. So, you know, I think that recovery from bad decisions is, and resilience, a word that's very popular today is really important. I think the best way to protect the country is to have a very good understanding of the possible threats and opportunities that are out there and constantly navigating your foreign policy to try to take advantage of the opportunities and minimize the threats. Once you're in the position of having to react to something like 9-11, you've already lost, right? It's like once you have to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic after 200,000 people have died, you've already lost. So the key is to act with intent, smartly, to make yourself as resilient and as flexible to deal with anything that comes along. Unfortunately, that too gets eaten up by short-term decision-making.
2: In the recovery process that you just mentioned that we want to kind of avoid, You said this September will be 20 years since 9-11. And do you think our country's national security institutions have really fully examined the effects of policy decisions that follow 9-11 and have learned from past mistakes and have entered that recovery decision?
1: In one word, I I would say no. I don't think that we have fully examined the effects, nor are we fully recovered. There are ways in which the COVID pandemic and 9-11 are similar, in that it was something that was unexpected, but you could have foreseen. Certainly, people were worried about terrorism before 9-11, and people were worried about epidemics before COVID hit. But the abstract is always difficult to organize your near-term actions around. And I think a big lesson that everyone has to learn, and this ranges across all national security issues. When we think about things that could go wrong, we tend to say that those are worst case scenarios. And as soon as we attach the category of worst case scenario to something, our minds immediately go, oh, well, that's unlikely. Because we're optimistic beings. So if I say X, Y, and Z could happen, terrorists could fly planes into the World Trade Center, some policymaker would say, well, that's, that's, that'll never happen. That's a worst case scenario. If I had to point to one lesson that the national security institutions still haven't learned is to stop dismissing horrible possibilities as worst case scenarios. In other words, I think we have to be almost agnostic about the scenarios and try to pursue the policy options that best prepare us, defend us from all the threats.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. I never thought about the worst case scenario situation that you had just mentioned. So do you think that's a more of like an issue within the intelligence field or is there an overall culture in America that you observe that contributes to making poor national security decisions? And is it just people being too close minded or having a negative view?
1: I think that affects everybody and affects all people. Just look at what happened uh, after the lockdowns became necessary. There were all sorts of companies, you know, companies, big companies, uh, they're, you know, like the airline industries, they can be very smug about, you know, we plan better than government and so forth and so on. But when it came to it, they had never taken any real consideration about what would happen if people couldn't fly for six months. And individuals who lost their jobs, and I know, you know, it's impossible to have an eight-month emergency fund if you work any kind of minimum wage. So there's something wrong with that advice from the get-go. But nevertheless, even individuals who had, you know, good incomes had not ever thought about saving for an eventuality like this. So I, I think it's just something that we're hardwired to do, we're too optimistic or there's a different word, we're just Pollyannish about the bad things that can happen. And if you look at uh, people that do very well in business or even government, for example, I think it's the people like Warren Buffett comes to mind who are cautious and are always looking to defend their positions against unusual threats who in the end do best. And I think that applies to you know, any of your friends, members in your family. If you look around, it's the person that is a little bit more cautious and more thoughtful about things that does better.
2: Definitely. And kind of in this fast paced and polarized country, do you think that accountability is something people are willing to take when it comes to recent history?
1: Well, unfortunately, our politics in the U.S. have gotten to be so partisan that we're always blaming the other side for whatever bad policy outcomes there are. And we don't really consider that there, but for the grace of God, you know, it could be me. And I mean, I think we're seeing that play out right now with the immigration issues at the border. So I think as long as we have a hyper-partisan environment, I think that gets in the way of accountability. And I think that you know it would be great if people admitted their mistakes earlier. It would be great if people admitted uncertainty earlier instead of going full speed ahead with a decision that may have a, a slim chance of success but you know what happens in the US in particular is because the situation has become so partisan the only groups that are held accountable are like government civil servants who can't protect themselves as well. So I, I would like to, there to be more accountability and you know what the problem with these commissions is so, so when we decide to have accountability we appoint a commission and the commission takes two years to study the issue. And by the time it issues its report, everyone has forgotten it. So I think that I don't have a real good answer on the accountability question. But I think as long as we remain so partisan about things, it's going to be very hard to improve actual accountability.
2: Yeah, I I agree with that. And kind of just witnessing the presidential campaigns and everything and in just the past decade, I guess, when it has to do with the war in the Middle East and intervention. Do you think that performative accountability exists versus actual accountability? So do you think that just apologizing for mistakes is enough or do you think there's kind of another level to accountability?
1: Yeah, I do think there is another level to accountability and, and you know, the ultimate accountability is changing your policy so that whatever you are accountable for can't happen again. That's the ultimate accountability. And I think, again, all you have to do is look at recent events to see how quickly when someone just engages in performative accountability, where they just make some grand apology, you know, on the Senate floor or something, how quickly those words can become meaningless in light of their subsequent actions. I mean, I'm I'm very much persuaded that real accountability is embedded in policy decisions. And it's much, I think, more profitable to fix what's broken than to punish those who broke things. So uh, accountability as punishment, I don't find very persuasive. And I think criminal law and criminal justice uh, philosophers have issued you know, they, they worry whether or not, you know, things like harsh prison terms and death sentences really create accountability. So I think that the real accountability is in making different policy decisions in the future.
2: And going off that idea of fixing what's broken, do you think ethics or history are emphasized enough to children? And how should the U.S. go about educating future future generations about national security issues?
1: Well, you know, it's been a long time since I was a child, so I my perspective on, on what kids learn now is limited, but I do think that we have to think more about how people get a sense of ethics, common history, common morality today. When I grew up, everybody watched the same 30-minute newscast every night, and, and that kind of level set them in a way about how to think about issues, right or wrong, at least it created a common bottom line or a common starting point. None of that happens anymore. And in fact, you know, live television is going away. So the idea that everyone will ever watch the same thing at the same time, I think is, is gonna be seen as rather quaint 10 to 20 years from now. So we have to think about how we will as citizens have a common understanding of truth and values in a democracy because without that, democracies don't survive. And a lot of people blame the internet for why we're having these problems. I don't blame the internet. I think it's the failure of institutions to adjust to the new reality of the internet that is creating the problems. Because of the internet, everybody has access to information. And not all of it is junk. Some of it is good. And yet institutions across the board still have closed information and decision-making processes. And every time you have a closed decision-making process, you're really opening yourself up to conspiracy theories and distrust. So I think what really needs to happen is we have to, all of us have to rethink how do democracies work in completely open information environments and then get down to the job of trying to of trying to implement the policies that will improve the situation we're in
2: definitely i never thought about that open information aspect that's super interesting and then my last question you you kind of touched on it a little bit but how do you propose conversations surrounding america's dark history should be made while still maintaining that kind of common good and common values that you mentioned. So basically maintaining patriotism while also recognizing America's dark history.
1: I do have an issue with, with people who sort of single out America as a country with a particular dark history. Because, you know, you can look at certainly any European power, Japan. I mean, you can just look at almost any country and say, you know, there, there are long periods of history that they cannot be proud of. So I think that the conversation, particularly for people who are not receptive to the, that idea that there are, you know, problematic parts of American history, I think making clear that you're not signaling out America with that charge, I think would, you know, ease their concerns a little bit. And, you know, my patriotism, my patriotism is about an ideal that I think I, I share with the rest of the world, frankly, and but I'm loyal to the way that America is trying to execute it. And I think that a lot of people are receptive to that idea, but a lot of people are not. And I think, again, I'll just go back to what I said earlier, that institutions have to figure out a way to open up their information and open up how they make decisions so that people who are inclined to distrust them, will perhaps over time learn to have a little bit more confidence in them and i think that will go a good way to improving things in the future but this is no easy thing this is something that is a generational project and we have to think of it that way
2: definitely that's very interesting well that was my last question so i thank you for having a really insightful conversation i hadn't thought about a lot of the stuff you mentioned
1: Well, you you said uh, I was a different thinker. So there you have it. I hope that I met my reputation. Yes, definitely.
0: You did indeed, Carmen and Carolina. And I have a couple of follow-up questions, if you don't mind. I want to go back to something you said early on about our not learning the lesson of being too optimistic about dismissing the worst case scenario as something that would never happen. How do you change that? Because that seems to be ingrained. I agree that that's a, that's a tough one.
1: And I I mean, and I, I have shared this in some of my writings and I get a lot of responses where people are like, what do we do? So one man told me he was a former military officer who said that he banned the use of worst case scenario in briefings and that instead of calling it worst case, he said the most dangerous, the most dangerous scenario is X, Y, or Z. And I think That's a nice little, easy little fix, right? Because I think you want to hear what is the most dangerous thing that could happen. So I think we need to abolish that worst case scenario vocabulary. And then uh, another suggestion I would make is that when we think about what could happen, we're generally not aware of how quickly a situation can go from being mediocre to a catastrophe. So we have this thinking that, okay, well, things are kind of mediocre now, but a lot of really horrible things have to happen before it gets much worse than this. This really affected our pandemic thinking, right? People early on were going, oh, well, we've only had 15 people killed, so it's okay. Not realizing how easily you could go from 15 to 15,000, right? So I think that when you talk about policies and scenarios, potential outcomes, you need to make clear that it's not three separate scenarios. And we and oftentimes PowerPoint puts us in this thing of, of creating three bullets. and and you have to say that these are these are this is a fluid spectrum. and we can go from fairly benign to really dangerous practically overnight without us really realizing it. And I think that that's two suggestions I have for how to change the way we talk about. Bad outcomes,
0: and a real quick follow-up uh, to what you were talking about about rethinking how democracies work in a completely open information environment. That's also something that is very entrenched, and I would imagine it's going to be hard to change that, particularly for certain in- institutions with a history of not being that open.
1: Yes, indeed, and I I, I just wrote a little piece on my personal blog not plugging it, but where I actually played out this idea a little bit. So, you know, imagine if the intelligence community maintained kind of an open information site for American citizens and and the world, not that far-fetched because they already do that with the global trends report, which is put out every four years, but imagine if instead of it being a static thing, it was dynamic. And it was constantly being updated. And imagine if it existed last year when COVID broke out. And imagine that there was moderated debate and people can could up and down vote people's contributions. And also imagine if it were a project, not just by the government, but if it was a joint project with government, business, and nonprofits, imagine if the Gates Foundation and The Koch Foundation both contributed to this, and there was a uh, board of directors that represented average Americans. It's pretty far-fetched, I know, but I will tell you that's the direction we need to go in, and every organization needs to go in to kind of win back every citizen's trust and to reset the way they operate in this new environment. So don't blame the internet. Really, the fault is in the organizations who have failed to adjust.
0: This is absolutely fascinating, Carmen. Thank you so much for being here. Carolina, thank you so much for covering this topic. And thanks to all of you for listening. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk.